BioChat, a podcast by Apple Technology. My name is Ken Lump, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only Apple's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills and to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Lisa Comenzo. She is the Marketing and Communications Assistant for the American Public Gardens Association, and she also performs a multitude of other tests for chefs and authors on social media. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I have not actually seen or talked to you since high school, which is... <laughs> we won't say how well, long. Well, <laughs> it's not accurate. We talk all the time on, on like the Facebook we do. and the socials and stuff. Lisa, you are not technically a scientist by trade, but you're actually uh, really big into conservation and stuff. And that's really what I wanted to talk about today is I realized over the years, like ever since, you know, elementary school and middle school, back in the 80s, of all things, we were like, maybe we should do something about this global climate change thing, or maybe we should start like saving some animals and, you know, saving the white rhino and saving the whales and all that stuff. And here we are about 40 years later. Very little has changed. The climate crisis is getting a little worse. There's sustainability issues. There's a lot more trash. But I think there's a growing movement to help society realize how to better sustain resources, how to plant more trees, not just as carbon offsets to greenwash things, but actually, you know, we kind of need to breathe and we kind of need to sustain an ecosystem so the trees are good and how to be more sustainable with food. And I think because you love science, we, I should kind of ask you, how did you, a non-scientist, get in touch with naturalism and science? I would say I think it started when I was little, you know, going to day camps, nature camps, and learning about nature. There was a day camp in San Ramon called uh, Mud Summer Nature Day Camp, and I went for seven summers, about two weeks out of every summer. And there was a lot of science that was involved with that. And that's what really got me interested in learning about animals and not being afraid of animals as much, you know, and nature. I mean, it was just, it was something I really enjoyed learning more about. Yeah, that sounds great. Like my personal path was, I really liked the idea of how a cell worked. So I was looking into like the really granular part of science, but I think you have a really nice overall holistic picture of how we fit into the world. And I think that's really cool. So we keep harping on the fact that you're not a scientist by trait, but in some way, we're all kind of scientists. We all try yep. to preserve the world around us, just doing whatever we can to improve the world, society, et cetera, for the folks who come after us. So what did you decide to do in college? Well, college started when I was still living in California, which is where, of course, I grew up. I started out into getting into journalism and communications because that was kind of the direction that felt natural for me because of being the newspaper editor in high school. And that was my early direction. <laughs> you edited the wolf print then? I was us. the arts and entertainment editor. And then oh, Ben okay. Hedstrom so, wrote for me. He was one of my writers. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, I worked on the yearbook. I was not the editor per se, but I helped out. I do remember us being in yearbook now because I was in yearbook um, throughout high school um, and middle school. And I always used to be so proud that I was the only student that was on yearbook in newspaper. <laughs> I think there were only like two guys on yearbook. The rest were all girls, which is kind of cool if you think about it. Yeah. But 
Yeah, you you actually um, left California after a bit, and so did I. I think we were in North Carolina together, although we didn't know it at the time. Yeah, you're. Is I went to Duke uh, for a couple of years for graduate school right after college. I actually graduated a year early, and it's like, well, I, I should probably get this PhD, and then I decided I wasn't ready to move back. But you you ended up at state, huh? When were you at Duke? What years were you in North Carolina? Uh, I graduated in uh, 2000, so I started there as a summer rotation uh, in the Duke University Department of Immunology. At that point, I was really excited. I was doing laboratory cell biology for the very first time, because when I was an undergrad, I actually did a structural biology lab, I guess rotation in a way. So we did a lot of that, but I didn't actually get to work with cells and animal models until we got into Duke. And I actually didn't like working with animals too much because I felt bad, like having to at some point sacrifice them. So I had a good time. I met a lot of friends, uh, many friends that I still have to this day. I got a lot of experience. I just didn't like the uh, grind of it. But the the Blue Devils did win the basketball championship while I was there. And and the the Hurricanes went to the Stanley Cup for the very first time while I was there. So that was a really cool Thing, really cool. uh, but, but unfortunately, I just like didn't want to sustain it. So I thought yeah. about go- actually going to veterinary school for a little bit. I, I wanted to go to state because state was like right down there. And they actually had one of like the they 11 do. or 12 veterinary schools in the entire country. That's right. so that was convenient. But then I was just like, well, maybe I should just go home and figure out what <laughs> it is I want to do first. And uh, it turned out that, well, I like science. I should probably get the PhD, and I en- ended up doing so in Chicago. It's Good been a you. very interesting journey for me. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, me, me too. You and I both moved around. You know, we started in California and in North Carolina for a little bit. It set me back yeah. trying to transfer classes. That was a really frustrating part of my life, trying to transfer. It set me back about two years. So I didn't oh, graduate sorry. until 2004. Oh, it's okay. Thank you. It was um, a long time ago now, but it was. I definitely had regretted moving. Yeah, I have friends in college at Berkeley, actually, who took many, many years to graduate. Like, the way I understand it is, like, you don't think of it as a failure. You just understand that progress is not linear. They tell you you're supposed to graduate in four or five years. Some people take seven. Some, my friend, who's incredibly smart, and uh, he he's a little older than me, it took, like, 10 years after I graduated, he finally graduated and he went back to medical school. Wow. So it's it's okay. not like, you know, the end of the world. Uh, another friend finally graduated with a degree in chemistry and then he got his PhD in chemistry and he's doing a postdoc in Northwestern now. So it's like, I, I don't think you need to tell yourself that there was a failure because I didn't huh. graduate in the four years I was supposed to. Yeah. Say, this is part of my journey. This is what, you know. Absolutely. Like the little gap that I had between two graduate school stints, I yeah. think was very important to like just shaping who I, I am. Say that. I think I was yeah. just frustrated. I think that was, it was more frustration than felt like a failure than anything. Just being told that all the classes, a lot of classes I took did not transfer. And so I had to mm. take them again. And they were all classes that I struggled in, like math and history. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was a rough time for that case but um like you said there was a lot of good things that came out of it like any experience in life anything negative there's always good that comes out of it and north carolina for being what it is 
very good cost of living <laughs> compared to California. Yeah. So um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed my time there and I kinda wish right. I could go back. So journalism, huh? How did you get from journalism to what you do now? Uh, well, the original dream was to write for Entertainment Weekly. I, in high school, I used to want to interview celebrities. That was always, I always thought that would just be a glamorous job to be, you know, interviewing Leonardo DiCaprio or something like that. But um, once we, we moved to North Carolina, everything set me back and I kind of had to reevaluate my direction. I did freelance a little bit for some newspapers at the time. And I wrote, um, I got really into music. So I was reviewing a lot of local bands and selling merchandise for bands. And and also starting, and at that point is when I started to try my hand at PR, just getting them on the radio, sending out press releases with a copy of their album and getting it out to like the Don Imus Morning Show back then. And that's kind of was my entry into PR and realizing that it was such a good fit for me. It's just my life in my 20s was kind of all over the place trying to figure out what direction I wanted to go. I was working in a bookstore at Barnes & Noble for like five years where I met a lot of great contacts at the time that helped me get some freelance opportunities. But then I just bounced around, you know, like, uh, like a lot of people. And then when I moved to uh, Washington, D.C. in 2007, uh, that's when I started to get into marketing. And kind of marketing and PR, you know, they're different, but they're also very similar, especially the public-facing aspect of it. And when I worked at Whole Foods Market, oh, my first job when I was at moved to D.C., I was the marketing assistant then and this did a lot of PR for the store. And it was, it was, a, it was a fun job to start with in the city and then bounced around a little bit more worked at Georgetown University where I acquired some administrative skills, which I didn't have at that point. Shortly after that, I became really involved with the winery. And at the winery, I became their sales girl in DC. I became a tasting room associate. I did, I wrote a column for the newsletter. I did some PR for them and social media. So I mean, I was always kind of using my journalism skills, you know, to write a column for the newsletter or to help to promote various bars and restaurants throughout the city. It's just one of those things where I've been able to apply these skills. They just came natural to me. And um, that was one of my side hustles. And then from the winery, I started getting involved with the food scene and starting to have more opportunities to help pitch restaurants. Every city has what's called like Eater DC or Eater Raleigh usually, or something like that, where it's a, it's a locally based online platform that helps to promote restaurants. And so I did I would be hired by some of these chefs to pitch to Eater DC. So that's the PR right there. So it's just everything was building on itself. And all these side hustles that I was doing was what I really wanted to be doing and helped me to get uh, my job at WWF and helped me to get the job that I have now. Awesome. There were ways um, if you bought, you know, like every grocery store line has their own product line. And so Whole mm-hmm. Foods product 365 was cheaper. And so as long as you if you wanted to you know kind of stay with just getting the staples that are 365, you're going to be saving a lot of money. It's when you get to buying the higher end stuff like your seafood, your meat, that is going to be pricey because those are a lot higher quality. They're from farms that um, practice you know, organic farming. Yeah. And I know that you were transitioning into WWF and the fact that you were with chefs. And I think you, you had told me that a lot of your the chefs that you worked with actually practice sustainable. How, how do you term it? Do you just call it sustainable food or sustainable farming? Uh, um, as far as the restaurants go, um, I also volunteer with the Surfrider Foundation. And they, they launched the program called Ocean Friendly Restaurant Program. 
And so that's uh-huh. where I, I help to meet with restaurants and talk to them about sustainability and find ways that they can, or resources to, to find ocean-friendly products. Because just because DC wasn't close to an ocean, the whole concept is to have more sustainable products that are better for the environment overall. So that it not doesn't just include packaging, right? Because I imagine a lot of their packaging is compostable. Like I kind of get upset sometimes because a lot of people uh, use plastic as their as their packaging. Yep. And yep. the fact is, like <laughs> if you if you look in the bottom of it, it has like the little recycle symbol and a number, and you know it's recyclable. But the thing is that the food stains it, and then if it's stained and you don't wash it out. Yep. The recycling plants don't take it. Exactly. So you have it to essentially makes it, yeah, a bunch of different restaurants around this area, because I still live in where we grew up in uh, Ceremon Danville, they do use compostable containers. So they're made That's out of cardboard great. or some kind of other organic material that, like, if you let it sit in a landfill, like, eventually it'll just, like, go back in the earth. But I, I don't think it ha- it's just packaging for, for you guys, though. There are other, like, behaviors and and yeah. strategies that they can use to absolutely drive that sustainability, right? Yeah. Yes, that's a huge part of it. And getting rid of styrofoam, because styrofoam is going to be here. I always joke that after mankind, you know, the styrofoam will still be around because <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't decompose. What What do restaurants really do to work with the environmental impact besides packaging? For example, straws that are compostable. Trying to use less plastic cups. I mean, that's always a big problem because the plastic is, is not a good for the environment. Or if they have plastic cups, the cups need to be a certain brand that can decompose. Sort of like bioplastics, basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Green yeah. plastics or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, what else did you do dur- during your time with WWF? Because that's actually kind of uh, interesting to me. Uh, we we used to have the, the cute little tote bag with a little panda on it. And oh, nice. WWF. Yeah. But, uh, I, I imagine that they do a lot of different things, including conservation of species, whether plant or animal, or maybe your, your random fungus, <laughs> I guess. But uh, yeah, well, if you can maybe describe uh, your role with them a little more. Absolutely. So I was hired uh, four months before the pandemic. So I was only able to be physically in the building with my colleagues for four months. I was on the media and external affairs team. What what I found so fascinating about WWF is um, it's not just about wildlife conservation. That's kind of the root and where it started. But over the years, just because of all the other environmental needs, you know, as far as food issues, you know, food security issues as far as ocean plastics, they, it touches on all of them now. You know, there's different teams that actually manage the different environmental issues. And so my team, of course, was split up and there were one to two people per issue. And then they worked with the other communications teams who were more directly involved with, you know, working with corporations, for example, to find out ways to cut down on waste. And unfortunately, being so removed from them, I mean, being remote, I definitely didn't feel as strong of a connection as I had hoped because you just learn what you can from any of the meetings. But what I did gather is just how important it was to be kind of part of that team that helps to work with these other teams that are really trying to make a difference in this world trying to help the environment. I'm glad you talked about the corporations because one of the issues that I have sometimes is with greenwashing. So 
I used to work with manufacturing, like once I moved back to California, you know, I got my PhD, I taught for a while, so yeah, teaching's cool, but I probably should like make a little more money. So <laughs> I have this PhD, I should do something with it. And so I worked in manufacturing for a while, especially during the pandemic. We made a lot of uh, PCR testing kits. And I realized, oh my gosh, you can measure the amount of plastic we wasted every day in kilograms. It's oh, not gosh, even an exaggeration. It. There was a lot. Yeah. And it's not only that it's heavy, it's that it takes up a lot of space. So that's landfill space, especially since you have to probably have a specialized type of landfill for the bio waste that you can't recycle anymore, even though, again, the, all these plastic things have a little, uh, little uh, recycle symbol with a number on it. You yep. can't recycle it. It's been tainted with like bio waste and stuff. So there, there are certain things that I think biology can do to just reduce their part of the plastic waste. But I think overall corporations and it's good that organizations such as WWF and others work with corporations to try to reduce their plastic and carbon footprint across yep. the planet. But I don't know if that's necessarily enough. I think like there's probably more that we can be done. We were more involved with the journalists. So there's always been kind of this you know, running theme in my life. And even though I, I've been a specific exact journalist that I've been involved, I've either been a freelance writer or in some respects or worked with journalists like I did at WWF. So I, I, I have assisted a lot of them to gather photos or conduct any research. Yeah, but as a journalist, actually, I think that's a very important task because if you're working in communications, you have to be, it's kind of like in science, like you can do a lot of really cool research, but if you can't tell a good story, what's that research worth? You need to be able to tell people so why this is well important, why it's impactful. Why yep. do we need to stop plastic waste so whales don't get like 90 pounds of plastic in their bellies and die, right? You know, right. like or there's like this gigantic patch in the middle of the ocean full of plastic. If you've ever seen a Mark Rover video, I think uh, he actually tried to engineer some robots to try to take care of that. But I don't know how how effective that is, because you're, you're going to need a lot of robots for that, that big patch in the ocean. But there, there are certain things that I think uh, we as individual human beings and citizens of the United, these United States and of the world can do uh, mm -hmm. on our own. And I think one of the things that you have passion for is actually going green, reducing your carbon footprint, trying to use reusable materials rather than single yep. use and things like that. I think a lot of governments are trying to do that. They make you pay 10 cents for a bag at the grocery store. And we're just like, I don't want to do that. Uh, but, you know, every now and then I will pay 10 cents so I could use it for you know, cat uh, waste. But other than that, it's just I have reusable bags. I'm going to reuse them. I'm going to try to reduce the amount that I throw into the, my black bin because that's going to landfill. And uh, we've all seen Wally. -E, right? <laughs> yeah, so, a few times, actually. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think it's honestly what it, a big part of it is being aware and making changes like being like when you're out shopping, really consider what you're buying and how it impact the environment. We're never going to be 100% perfect because there's too much of it out in this world. It's hard to avoid absolutely everything. But if you can at least cut down every day a little bit more, even eating less meat, you know, that can even help. You know, every everything you do has an impact. It's just we can't see it when it's one person. But if it's 10 people, 100 people, a million people who stop buying these plastic bottles, 
those plastic bottles won't be reordered because nobody's been buying them, which means not that many are going to be ma- um, being manufactured. And so it's one of those things where you just have to trust that you are part of that change. And you, you had said that you left Washington, D.C. at some point to go back to North Carolina, and now you no longer actually work with uh, WWF, but you do work with this interesting organization that I hope you want to tell me more about. It's the American Public Gardens Association, and I guess there's an association for everything. I never really there thought is. Of, of it that way, <laughs> but it's like, you know, you walk around Osage Park or one of the, uh, the Iron Horse Trail where we grew up, and it's like there are these public lands with, you know, foliage and trees and what, whatever around. And someone has to take care of that. Is that basically what your organization is? Uh, no. So it's it's kind of since being hired for the American Public Gardens Association, it's opened my eyes. I had no idea we had over 600 public gardens and arboretums throughout this country, uh, which are basically protected public spaces. And this association has actually been around since the early 20th century. So a very long time. And some of these gardens date back even farther before that. So it's just it's it's been such a cool journey already just learning about these gardens and working with the staff and the executive directors of the gardens throughout the country. So basically what we what we do is a good way to explain it is we help to take care of and champion these public gardens. So we have a variety of educational resources, webinars, symposiums. We have a annual conference that is in a different city every single year. And of course, in that city, we have what are called host gardens. So we work closely with those gardens to help to promote them as a thank you. What's also been wonderful is seeing the conservation lens through the garden and learning about what they do, what these the staff are doing throughout the country, because they're aware and they know, I mean, they, they take care of our public spaces. So that's the environment. What can they do to continue to protect that even more? And one of the big issues, of course, is uh, all the natural disasters that have happened lately. The floods, the fires, and the hurricanes really affect a lot of our, our gardens. But no, but like I said, so through that lens, learning about what they do with compost and, and how a lot of these gardens are changing more. They have a lot of solar panels on their roofs. They've got a lot, of, you know, their power tools. They don't, they have battery powered now or so they're, they're really trying to transition away from anything that would cause any sort of harm to our environment. So trying to stay away from fossil fuels, gasoline power, exactly. like leaf blowers and stuff That's like what that. I, yes, yes, yeah. exactly. I was trying to yeah. We actually did have an electric lawnmower uh, when I was growing up, but I, I think my dad got mad at me a few times because I kept running over the court. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I figured it out after a while. So it, it was good <laughs> to do that because it just all that gas, it it does create fumes and it really messes you up because if you oh, breathe yeah. in too much of that, it's basically toxic. You work a lot with beekeepers because I, part of our ecosystem is like yeah. all the bees that are able to cross pollinate all these gardens. So I don't, but a lot of these gardens do have a lot of bee gardens. I mean, that's that's it, and that's one of the things that they advocate to all of their local communities too is saying that you can help too you don't have it doesn't have to be just at a garden you can plant native flowers you can plant milkweed for the butterflies and you know research to find out or go to these gardens to learn about what flowers that you need to plant in your backyard to just help the bees 
So the gardens are also uh, educational resource, to, huge, not not that, huge educational not that people can just like decide to go over here and plant like their willow tree or something, because oh, yeah. I, I think the garden has their own infrastructure for that. But they'll tell you this is how you you actually do stuff for your own front or backyard or like a common space that you share with your HOA or whatever right. in order to attract more <laughs> beneficial insects. Invasive species, like do you guys have a lot of problems with that? Like I know a friend <laughs> in New York has this yeah. issue with this. Like I don't know if it's like a mantis or a mosquito, but it, it it's like uh, there's a mandate now to like every time you see this thing, you have to squash it because it oh. is an invasive and terrible species. That's like the lantern flies out here when I was yes. first hired. Yes, my, it was yeah. That yeah, my manager was like, whenever you see him, you've got to kill him. He says that somebody, I guess he, he was um, he was outside of a store once. He, they're, they're all based in Philly, mo- most of them. And he said he came out of a store once. He saw lantern flies. He started stomping on them. He said people were looking at him like he was a crazy person. But he was just trying to kill the invasive species. <laughs> but it's it's not just the, the bugs. I mean, the bugs are a huge issue, but it's also certain invasive species of plants. And the way some of these arboretums, for example, gardens too but arboretum just because there's more uh, more land space and not as many display gardens where they have a lot of goats so there's companies now where you can rent goats and the goats will come out and they'll you block off um, an area and they just sit and they eat all the plants all the invasive species it's a more eco-friendly way of mowing the lawn it's becoming very popular yeah and uh, the goats i guess are, are getting their feet yes uh, they're getting fed feed. Yep. Yeah, and uh, it's a win-win. doing the service for you. <laughs> and they're so super cute. Yeah, a pretty cool thing. Yeah. I guess uh, even though the goats and cows and whatever are being used, will you know they'll they'll release their fumes, but it's probably way less than a gas before. So yeah, uh, that's yeah. good. Well, they turn it into an event because when they let the public know, the kids love the, the goats, so they get to come and see the goats eat. Yeah. So it's it's kind of fun. Are they trained to do that, or do they just prefer the ones that are not naturally supposed to be there? They they actually have a preference for invasive species. It's like they, they kind of know. Huh? Well, the goats are known to eat almost anything. So they'll, you know, it's plants. And as long as the plants aren't poisonous, you know, they're, they're safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but goats probably have a lot better immune system for that, that kind of thing than we oh, do. Of course, of course. <laughs> no, no, that we wash all our vegetables and stuff so don't, we don't right. get worms. <laughs> So uh, where are you going from here, Lisa? Like uh, now, now that you are part of this uh, public garden association, but also you're you're still doing a lot of different things on the side. You're like a jack of all trades or a jill of all trades, you know. <laughs> oh, thanks. Oh, well, I'm still doing. I'm managing a social media account for Chef Patrice Olivon, who is a, a French chef based in D.C. And uh, he came up with a really unique, absolutely delicious Madeleine that has flavored glazes. So it's called J'aime Madeleine, which is I love Madeleine in French. And he right now he's just at the farmer's markets, but I'm able to remotely help him and just kind of keep his his social media going and work with a lot of his customers. So I do that on the side. And uh, now that I'm, I just moved to Wilmington here in North Carolina, I started to get involved with a lot more volunteering. So I'm volunteering with the Plastic Ocean Project, and they are an ocean organization here, a local one that is also closely tied with um, UNCW, so with a lot of the college students. And it's science-based, too, as well. They do a lot of studies on um, ocean plastic. 
So volunteering for them, and I'm also volunteering at the Arboretum, which are one of our uh, our members. So I'm just getting into that. I'm not sure yet where my future is going, but I'm I'm still kind of starting a new a new life here. But it sounds like you're very. I, I don't know if I would say content, but I, I feel like you are. Are you feeling fulfilled as you work so closely with everything that's essentially it's natural. You're you're by the ocean in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. You're next to all this green and like pretty flowers and, and trees and everything. You're, you're communing with nature. It sounds like something that I would like to do if I wasn't stuck behind a computer most of the day. But, you know, yeah, it, it, no. it sounds like a lot of fun. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah. I, I hope that we can actually sustain bigger spaces for our kids to just kind of frolic and, you know, smell the flowers and Absolutely. play with wildlife if they, you know, have the rabies shots. <laughs> but, uh, I think yeah. it- well, it starts with the children. It starts with educating them, you know, how they can maintain or uh, what we call smaller um, carbon footprint, you know, and how to protect public spaces. I did uh, recently, like a couple of years ago, convert to an electric car. Like they're they are very quiet, and I, yeah, I think I saved car. a lot of money on gasoline. Like it, it's just like you know when you turn on a gas car, it's like rum, rum, rum. Uh, mm-hmm. here there's no tailpipe. It's just kind of hums it sounds like angels when you turn it on you know <laughs> I've heard and it. it's it's really nice the the thing is like i i think it goes into healthy eating and healthy living uh absolutely make it, it. make it affordable for everybody to adopt and the moment somebody can figure out a way to do that i think we're going to be in a much better place well speaking of food i you know really try to make an effort to go to your farmer's markets because you're supporting local and a lot of times it's going to be a little bit cheaper than you find at Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah, we do actually go to the farmer's market around here. The prices yeah. are a little higher. I think it's because oh. they have to generate a profit and uh, they, they have to pay for their overhead. But the yeah. food is really good. Uh, you can tell that they grew it, I guess, by hand. I don't know how, how you say it. Like the plants that are growing themselves, they they obviously added them like fertilizer yeah. and water. Right? So there there there's like a strategy behind that, and it's often tasty oat milk or almond milk. It's really tasty morsels, really good cookies, uh, and of course <laughs> the green vegetables that you you need. So yeah. you know, we we don't all get colon cancer because we all we only eat meat or something. <laughs> yeah, it's been a really fun. Catching up with you, Lisa. You too, and I, I wish you success with the American Public Gardens Association. I wish you. you success because, like, we always need uh, green spaces. Like, I, I think there's probably a better way to do urban planning and whatnot. But uh, it's good to know that someone's out there trying to preserve our gardens for future generations. Many people, yes. This has been a conversation with Lisa Comento who is the Marketing and Communications Assistant for the American Public Gardens Association. And we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of App Formal Technology, hosted and on the and Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find a very social and show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on appformal.com, where you can also find a vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or any comments, or to inquire about Apple's quality products and services, please send a message to service at Apple.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.